So last week we started this new preaching series in the book of James. And one thing we need to know is the book of James is actually a letter. It's a letter that was written by James. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1. It was written by James, not the disciple of Jesus, but rather the half-brother of Jesus. The brother who uh, had, Jesus had the same mother, right? But they definitely had different fathers. And he was also the leader of the early church, according to Acts 15. Now, in Acts chapter 1, after his resurrection, after spending 40 days with his disciples, um, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. He gave this promise that the Holy Spirit would come. He also proved indeed that he is alive. And after all that, he goes up. And then the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2, just like Jesus promised. And when the Holy Spirit comes down, uh, the Holy Spirit empowers all these believers to become witnesses of Jesus Christ. So these disciples, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues, different languages, languages that people can understand, right? There were a lot of visitors in Jerusalem, and people were wondering, how, how are they speaking our language? So it was just this crazy scene. People were preaching the gospel, like Peter, he stood up from the crowd and started to preach the gospel, and he gave this invitation. You know, people were wondering, how should we respond to this message? And Peter says, well, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And on that one day, 3,000 people were saved, and they were baptized the same day. And this is the beginning of the early church. You know, people were devoted to the word of God, and they were also devoted to one another. They were gathering in in the temple to to listen to God's word. They were worshiping together. They were having fellowship together. They were breaking bread with one another. It was just this beautiful scene where believers were coming together. And in Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, it says, And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. So the numbers are just piling up. It's like this great revival. The early Christians, they were on fire for Jesus. You know, people were being saved left and right. Sick people were being healed. Broken people were being restored. It was just this massive, ongoing revival. And when we hit Acts chapter 6, what happens is there's so many people within the church and also so many needs. Um, the apostles, they have to appoint deacons, servants who would, who would lead the church in act of service and, and meet the needs of the people, who would support the ministry of the church leaders. So um, among those deacons, there's this guy named Stephen, and he is just this godly man. But something happens in Acts chapter 7. Well, Stephen, this guy gets into this debate with the Jewish leaders, and he basically says, hey, you guys are sinners. What you're doing is wrong. You need to repent. You need to believe in Jesus. And the Jewish leaders, they don't like what they're hearing. And so instead of responding with faith and obedience, they decide to stone Stephen to death. And sure enough, Stephen dies, and in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the people, the believers, they started in Jerusalem, but when we come to Acts chapter 8, they are all scattered all over the place in Judea and Samaria. Now, why did I just go through eight chapters of the book of Acts? (laughs) It's because... That's the audience that James is writing this letter to, a scattered group of Christians, broken Christians, Christians who are running because of their faith. In James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning people who are scattered because of God, to you, greetings. That's the audience. 
And why is this important? Well, James is writing to an audience who are facing trials and temptations. They are being faced with persecution. They are living in poverty, right? They didn't have time to pack all their stuff. Uh, they're settling in this new land. So, you know, um, everything is really difficult and hard. Uh, people are coming after them because of their faith. It's just really difficult to live as a Christian. And they're probably wondering, hey, if I just compromise my faith, if I just make a little bit of adjustments, if I just, you know, just give in in a certain areas, life would be so much easier. You know, if, if I just adjust to the people around me, if I just accept the culture that's, that I'm living in, life would just be so much easier. These Christians, they were persecuted. And they were living in poverty. And maybe just like the early Christians in the first century, maybe you are going through the same struggle where you are confused or even crushed in your spirit. That you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You had that fiery moment in the beginning where you were just going after God and you have seen people come to Christ. You're just sharing the gospel left and right. You are living in harmony with a group of believers. But one day, everything just falls apart. The moment you face trials and persecution, you know, you get confused. Your spirit gets crushed. Life is difficult. The Christian faith seems irrational, and following Jesus Christ seems inconvenient. Now, this problem was just not the problem of the early Christians. If we can be honest with ourselves and our lives, this is the problem that we face every single day. A lot of us, we come to church, but every single day we are making compromises. Like we are giving in in different areas of our faith, which is why the book of James is so important to the Christian faith. No, if you are just overwhelmed with trials and temptations and all the difficulties in life, if you feel like it's really difficult to live as a Christian, I'll tell you what, this letter is for you. No, James, he begins his letter in verse 3. He says, uh, verse 2, count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials and various kinds. This is why he begins the letter with talking about trials of various kinds. Later, he talks about poverty, how, to, how that compares to prosperity. And basically what the letter of James is saying is in the midst of all, all these troubles and, and trials, you need wisdom. James teaches us that we need wisdom in order to face these trials and difficulties, in order to remain faithful in hardships. And the way that we should not respond to trials and temptations is blaming God or living in sin. We saw this last week when we looked at verse 12 through 15. You know, God allows um, difficulties in our lives, not hoping that we would fall apart and get destroyed, but hoping that we would grow from it. Right? There's a clear difference between test and temptation. Sin is rather your choice and mine, not something that God forces upon us. No, sin, blaming God, that's not the way to go when you are facing trials and temptations. In verse 16, James says, do not deceive or do not be deceived in the midst uh, of trials. In verse 17, he says, because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from God, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow to, to change. So this is what James is saying. He's saying that our God... He's the good father, and he does not change over time. So if you put the pieces together, it makes no sense when you say that God is tempting you. 
It makes no sense that God is responsible for your difficulties and hardships and that he's trying to just crush you. No, God is not responsible for your sin because God, he is this good father who does not change over time, meaning he does not delight in evil. The Bible says that he, he, he himself is not tempted with evil. Therefore, how can he tempt others with evil? How can he tempt others when he, does, he himself does not delight in evil? And this fact does not change over time. So the rational conclusion that you should arrive if you believe that God is good and God is your father and that he is unchanging is the fact that, okay, God is not the one who to blame when life is difficult and things are falling apart. One piece of evidence that he is good is found in verse 18 when it says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And this word of truth, according to Ephesians, is the gospel of Christ. Through the gospel of Christ, he brought us forth, that he included us into his family. If you're wondering if God is good, just look at what he has done through Jesus Christ, what he has done for your life. So the way that you sh we should respond to trials and difficulties, to temptations of sin, is not by simply blaming God. It's not by just, you know, giving up and living in sin. Because we have to remember that God is good. Rather, James begins to argue in this new section that the key to responding to trials, the key to resisting temptations, is actually properly reacting to the word of God. That's the key. Respond to trials, resist temptations by properly responding and reacting to the word of God. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to properly respond to the word of God? James gives us three things um, in today's passage. First, he tells us to make room for God's word. Make room for God's word. Verse 19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, meaning he's talking to Christians, people who are following Christ, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So three quick commands, right? Uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is how we should respond to trials and temptations. Now, normally when life gets difficult, where, when we face hardships, the first thing that we do is actually we express our frustration. You know, whether it's, it's through grabbing someone and, 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 and just bursting out of anger, whether it's going on social media and venting through, through all these different comments, whether it's just like, you know, making sounds and noises like, ah, you know, we try to express our anger. We want the world to know that we are mad, right? Whether it's at work, whether it's with our friends, we want people to know that we are pretty upset about our situation. We want to talk. You know, we want to be heard. Now, we want to voice our opinion and tell others how we feel about our situation. And what the word of God is telling us today is slow down. Slow down. Listen. Listen to the word of God. Now, it's important for us to understand that anger itself is not sinful. Um, God himself, time and time again, he expresses anger, especially towards injustice or sin, right? He has this righteous anger, being angry for the right reasons. We hear, um, when we hear that kids are dying uh, of, of starvation, it should make us angry. When we hear uh, about racism or witness racism, it should make us angry. When things are not right, it should make us angry. The Bible does not say don't get angry. 
Rather, it says, be slow to anger. Because quick expression of anger, a lot of times, is selfish, it's, it's spontaneous, and it's driven by sin, simply because we're frustrated, right? It doesn't come out from a godly heart. It comes out more from our wicked flesh. And that's why James is telling us, hey, hey be slow to anger. I mean, if you're going to get angry for the right reasons, that's okay. But just before you express your anger, think about it. Rather than expressing it, go to the word of God first. And this is why James says in verse 20, For the anger of man, not the anger of God, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. No, our society, again, encourages the expression of feelings, which includes anger. A lot of times we express our anger um, and we just say, hey, I'm just being real with myself. This is just how I feel. You know, what are you going to say? You know, uh, we, we are quick to express our anger because sometimes we think, we think it's going to make a difference. Now, I don't know why, but the past couple of months, I had to, you know, contact a lot of different companies. I don't know, know if you know this, you know, our screen broke down, so I had to contact the screen company. Um, we replaced our water, water fountain, so I had to contact the water fountain company. And what I realized is that I have an anger issue. <laughs> I didn't know this, uh, but, you know, I realized I really have an anger issue. You know, I'm dealing with a representative, and I'm, I'm nice at first, right? I'm calling from a church, by the way, so they know that I work for the church. And I'm being all nice, and then I wait for a quote, and then something goes wrong with a quote, and then I try to reach this person, and this person not responding, you know, and then there's some miscommunication, and all this stuff happens, and one day I just said, man, I can't, I can't take it. This guy is not taking me seriously. I, I gotta show what, I tell him who's boss, right? I'm a customer, right? And so I burst out in anger. I, I tell him, I want to talk to your manager, and as soon as the manager receives, I thought he was going to be apologetic. No, but the manager starts to defend the employee. And I'm like, I get so mad and angry. And so I just go off, off. And, 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 and the manager, he goes off as well. And then after a couple of minutes of us venting uh, together, we come to a place where we say, so what do we do? Right? Our expression of anger, although it might communicate something, it never solves the problem. Right? Me getting angry does not fix the screen. or It does not replace the water fountain. A lot of times we think anger is going to do justice and it, somehow it's going to be a solution. But anger, especially quick anger, never solves anything. It just makes things worse. Because the moment you go, walk into anger, a lot of times you lose control. And, you know, one thing that a godly man would do is have self-control. That's one of the fruit of the, Holy, fruit of the spirits. So... Anger, especially anger of men, does not produce righteousness of God. So when trials and temptations come our way, we need to be quick to listen, so to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because it makes room in our lives for the word of God. No, in verse 21 it says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and it's this idea after a long day, you know, back in the days, they, a lot of people, they were farming, they, agriculture was the main business, right? So they would work in the fields, they would sweat all day, and when they come home, they would just strip away all their dirty clothes and, and, and change into clean clothes. And that's kind of the idea, uh, what James is saying, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Take off your dirty clothes before walking into the house. You know, in the same way, James is telling us to take 
off all filthiness and wickedness. Why? So that we can respond and listen to the word of God. It says in verse 21, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So the process of quick listening, so to speak, solar anger, that takes away all the distractions in our lives, but it does not solve the ultimate issue in our life. Right? It only takes away the distractions. That process is not what transforms our lives. It's not what gives us direction. It simply takes away all the distractions. When you take away all the distractions, you got to put new clothes on. You got to, you know, get comfortable once again. And the Bible says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So the reason why you want to make room in your life is so that you can listen to the word of God. Once you make room for the word of God, you have all that you need. You know, um, I want you to notice a couple things here. First, the word is something that is not is something that we don't is not something that we plant, but rather it's something that is planted in us. So, who does the planting? Um, it's actually God who does the planting. The book of James is quite interesting. The name of Jesus only appears twice in the entire book. Once in in, in chapter one, the beginning of chapter one, once in the beginning of chapter two. And that's, that's why a lot of people debated over this book. Should it be included in the Bible or not? Because, you know, it only mentions the name Jesus twice. And a lot of the sayings are more practical, right? They are wisdom sayings. Do this, do that. It doesn't really have the gospel, right? You know, and all, and all that. So a lot of people are saying, oh, man, this is a heretical book, right? This is just a book about practicality. Um, you know, we can't include this in the canon. However... If you really carefully read this book, although it doesn't say the name Jesus, every single teaching is referencing to the teachings of Jesus. It's really an echo of the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Issues that Jesus addressed, issues regarding money, issues regarding speech, issues regarding, you know, acting upon the word. All these issues were issues that Jesus addressed in his ministry. And, and, and what's happening here is, is that um, this, this saying is reminding us of the parable that Jesus spoke, the parable of, of the four soils. And there's all these different soils, and the soils represent our hearts. And in each soil, there's the seed that's thrown, scattered, and that seed represents the word of God. And there's three soils that do not produce fruit, but there's one good soil that produces fruit. You know, if we want to produce fruit, the first thing that needs to take place is God has to plant the word into our hearts. And this tells us something. It tells us that God is actively looking to plant his word into our hearts. Now, when we surrender to Jesus Christ, uh, what happens is the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And the Holy Spirit, his nickname is the Spirit of Truth. He is there to remind us of everything that Jesus has taught he points us to Jesus Christ. And also, we have, are in this new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, where we have this new heart. God says, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. So no longer would you have the written law, but the law is going to be on your heart. That you will not just obey my command, but you will be delighted to obey my command. No, and he gives us this body, the body of Christ, that we can grow together in his word. You have to understand, although you are the one who's reading the word of God, God is the one who's planting this seed in your heart. He is the one who's initiating this process. God is actively planting his word right now at this very moment. God is the one who's initiating this process. However, we need to respond actively in humility. James says, receive with meekness. 
with humbleness. No, this is addressing the attitude in which we accept the word of God. And when we read the word of God, it's not just this self-help book. It's not just a collection of good sayings. It's not just a good piece of advice. It's actually the word of God. The living word of God that's active, that has authority, that, that has no error, that is relevant in every area of our lives. That's what we're reading. And it's because that's it, because it's just not a novel or a history book, we need to approach the word of God in a proper manner, in humility. No, this is the very word of God. Which begs the question, how often are you challenged by the word of God? How often are you changed by the word of God? Not how often you read it, not how often you, know, you listen to it. But do you accept the word of God in a humble manner? You know, do you pick and choose what you like in a sermon or in a passage? Or do you say, God, you know, tell me whatever you want to say and I'll act upon it? Or are you listening at all? Are you just too busy in life to listen to the word of God? Do you have a designated place and time where you are spending time in God's word, where you are sweating, where you are just diving in to this, this, this source of, of wisdom and, and life? Or is the word of God just an afterthought in your life? No, make room for the word of God so that you can listen to the word of God. But it doesn't stop there. There's one last thing. We need to act upon the word of God. In verse 22, it says, But be doers of, God's, of the word of God and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So just mere listening, James is not addressing the problem of listening, but he's saying mere listening does not change anything. No, it is useless. Because if we don't do what the word of God tells us to do, we are just hearers. No, people can be touched by God's grace, but if we don't respond to the word of God, there will be no transformation in our hearts. You know, we need to respond to the word of God with radical obedience. If you believe that the word of God can save you, you better believe that he can, it can guide you and, 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 and help you in times of need. In order to illustrate this, James gives us a very simple yet profound metaphor. He says in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So how many of you have actually looked into the mirror before coming to church today? Well, not a lot. Oh, man, that's surprising. Uh, hopefully you look into the mirror, right? There's a couple of things that you need to adjust. Okay, you know, you, know, you got to make sure that nothing's on your face. You make sure that your eyebrows are in the right place, right? You got to make sure that yeah, nothing's uh, in between your teeth. Please look at the mirror before you come out, <laughs> come out of the household. But, you know, uh, there's three ways we can react to a mirror. Um, actually, there are kind of four ways. Um, the first way is just you're just in awe of yourself, right? You're like, oh, man, who's that good-looking dude, <laughs> right? And you spend hours just in front of the mirror, like, striking different poses, like, trying different, like, hairstyles, and you're like, oh, man, yeah, man, that, this, is, this is perfection, right? God's creation. <laughs> I hardly doubt that that would be the response uh, of most of you. Uh, if that's, that's you, I, I pray for you. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Normal people, uh, they respond in three different ways. Number one, uh, they see different faults. And 
sometimes they get mad, right? Uh, they get mad that, oh, man, why, do, why is my eyes like this? You know, why do I look like this? Um, you know, why is my hair, you know, it's not in the right direction. No, I don't have volume. Um, no, it's, it's, it's just not great. Oh, man, I, I'm upset. And you just get mad and you just walk away. Some people just ignore the fact, right? They ignore the fact that they saw something wrong, they see something wrong, but they're like, ah, no one's going to care, no one's going to notice, and they walk away. And then there's this third group that actually does something about, uh, about the mistakes or about the things that you have to change, right? Uh, the whole point of looking into a mirror is to see uh, the reflection and to make corrections, right? When we see a clear reflection of ourselves, we can identify some of the things that we need to change and transform. No, if not, why do you look into the mirror in the first place if you're not going to do anything about it? The mirror back in the day was not this transparent glass or reflective glass, was, but rather it was this polished metal plate. So it was kind of hard at first to identify the reflection, but you have to look at it and, you know, for a long time you know, very carefully. And, and when you do so in the right angle, you can finally see a clear reflection of yourself. And that's when you make changes and you make sure that everything is right. So what the Bible is saying today is, is the word of God is like a mirror. That when you read it, there's a couple different ways you can react. Number one, you can say, oh, man, man, I'm just perfect, right? The word of God, um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just, just living according to God's word and you just walk away. Um, there's a technical term for that. It's called a Pharisee. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, some of you get really mad when you read God's word. You feel like, you know, you, you feel guilty, you, you feel shame. You're like, oh, man, this, this, I, I hate the word of God because it exposes my faults and my failures. And you just walk away mad. Now, some of us, we just ignore the word of God. It's like we listen to it, we read it, and it's like, eh, whatever, and just walk away. But the proper way to respond to God's word according to this illustration is to look closely and carefully for a long period of time to identify the things that we need to change and transform, and we have to do something about it. No, that's the way to respond to God's word. It's not just by looking, but it's by responding and acting upon what you look and see. No, the devil has two main ways in how uh, he keeps us away from responding to the word of God. First, uh, he makes us simply ignore God's word in general, right? We don't care about God's word. Second, he makes us super busy so that we would forget God's word, right? We simply don't remember you know, when we listen to the sermon, when we read a passage, we're like, oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, 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 I need, that. I, I need that in my life. I need more of that in my life. But the moment we walk away, we go out of those doors, we're like, oh, I have a million different texts that, that I received. You know, I have all these different things that I need to take care of. Oh, where are my kids? And I go, go find them. And then because of the busyness of life, all of a sudden we just simply forget the word of God. It's like looking into a mirror yet not doing anything about it because you just simply forgot what, what, what was the problem in the first place. In verse 25, it says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres or continues, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So make room for the word of God, listen to the word of God, and act upon the word of God. And the result is in the midst of trials and temptations, you can be blessed, that you can walk in a ways of blessing. And this is a big question mark, right? Because what does that look like? Does that mean, you know, all my trials and temptations are going to go away? 
Does that mean all of a sudden I'm going to be blessed with all this abundance, physical, material blessings? I think the best way to understand blessing is in Psalm 1 when it talks about blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners but sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, a man who is blessed is not someone who mingles with the wickedness of this world. Rather, he's, he delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. No, a person who's blessed is a man who meditates on the word of God, who holds on to the word of God, who makes room for the word of God, not being carried away by the things of this world, but who invests and, 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 and studies the word of God. That's the person who is blessed. And it goes on to say, this person is like a tree planted by streams of water, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. No, and, and it yields fruits in its season. That's the picture. The Bible does not say a person who is blessed, you know, gets exempt from, from droughts or difficulties of life. Rather, a person is not shaken by those difficulties or hardships of life because he is planted by streams of water. That is the blessing that you have. It's not that all, God is all of a sudden going to take away your trials and your troubles. It's not that if you take this three-step process by making room, listening, and, and acting upon your word, all of a sudden your life is going to be in a better shape. No, you are going to be in a better shape to respond to your difficulty because you would have access to unlimited access to the source of life, the word of God, the word of wisdom, the fountain of life. That is the blessing that we have, that we have access to God's presence and his promises and his power every single time we open up the word of God. So the question is, why don't we do it? Why don't we simply open up our Bibles, make time for God, listen, instead of acting upon anger, getting all frustrated in, with life, instead of walking in sin and blaming God, why don't we just sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what God has to say about life. Respond to trials, resist temptation by properly reacting to the word of God. Let's pray.